I'm going to be reading from Luke 24, 33 to 53. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that it is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This week on Friday, we had a dinner with some really good friends of ours, uh, Megan's cousin, and they've just become dear friends, her and her husband, their names are Lindsay and Greg. And Greg's dad, uh, Bill, just recently passed away. So a number of the conversations that we've been having as we've had dinner with them, and they've reached out saying, can we please have dinner, has just been a time for Greg to reminisce on Bill, his dad to remember and verbally process and go through this with us and, and tell stories, and Greg is a great storyteller. And he shared this story with me about Bill. Bill uh, grew up uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, what's now what we would call the Rust Belt, working class town. And Bill's father was not always there. In fact, Bill's father was rarely there. And he had a tumultuous relationship with his dad, we could say that. Here, here today, gone tomorrow. One time he told me that, that uh, Bill's dad had come by and it was Bill's birthday. And he said, hey, your birthday present's out in the truck. And Bill went out and looked through the truck in the front seat of the cab, didn't see anything, came back and said, I don't see, he goes, it's right there, it's right there on the passenger seat. And there on the passenger seat as he dug around, it was a little hotel toothpaste. He said, happy birthday. Bill continued to desire to be with his dad. And his dad came around again one time, said, hey, tomorrow let's go fishing. 
So Bill got the tackle box and the pole together and stood out in the stoop at 8 a.m. when he was supposed to meet his dad. 8, 9, 10, 3 p.m. His dad never showed. Bill grew up, got a job. And in this small town, people know each other's names. People know who's doing what, who's where. And his friend comes and he says, hey, your dad just got a job where I work. He's around. Bill, Bill hadn't heard from his dad in forever. Your dad's around. He said, if you see him, could you tell him I'd really like to see my dad? I'd really like to see him. I'd just really like to talk to him. So he did. One day his dad shows up. And Bill tells him, he says, look, what's, what's done is done. What's happened with me is done. You weren't, you weren't a dad for me. But I have kids now. And I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you a chance to be a grandpa. I want you to be a grandpa to my kids. Will you do it? Will you take this second act? In fits and starts, Bill's dad began to become a grandpa. First, he gave him a fake address and a fake phone number. Greg says he thought he was afraid he was going to come over and beat the tar out of him. But slowly, Bill's dad accepts the role of grandpa. And all Greg knows growing up is that grandpa was around making, making rubber band guns with the bandsaw, was around as just a regular grandpa. And his dad, Bill, never said one thing about it. So for all Greg knew, he had just a regular quintessential experience with his grandparents, all because Bill gave his dad a second act. Bill gave his dad grace. He gave him a chance. He didn't deserve it. He hadn't done anything to earn it. But it was the thing that redeemed his dad, the thing that brought him into a fullness of life. And then Greg looked at me and he goes, but here's the hard thing. He goes, my dad was everything his dad wasn't. My dad was the perfect dad. He knew everybody in town. He was so loved and he was thinking about the gravestone he had gone to visit. And he said, but my dad still died. And though he spent his whole life trying not to make me sad like his dad did, there I was looking at his gravestone just completely distraught. Greg at our dinner table was grappling with one of the most painful questions we all ask. True theology is taking the human experience up against the reality of the universe and asking the questions, why? Israel is the community that wrestled with God. And here is Greg at my table wrestling, and I don't have the pat answer. I literally thought this is the opening, this is like the moment. And then I said, I'm just going to be quiet. You can't answer a question of that gravity in one sentence. You're grappling with the right questions. Greg saw something so true and beautiful about the acts of his dad, Bill, which is that he was giving grace, a second act. And Jesus has given all of us a second act. None of us deserve it. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, no one is righteous, not one. Later on in 20, it says, for by the works of law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. We're all sinners saved by grace. That's the foundational reality of what it means to be a Christian. 
when we call ourselves a Protestant Christian, we proclaim that reality that we are all on the same page in this room and we are actually all in the midst of our second act if we have accepted Jesus. What kind of humility does that create in our community to actually proclaim that? So today we're, we're, we're finishing out a series on the basics. And we've been trying to keep ourselves narratively in this 40-day period between Jesus' death and the empty tomb and his ascension, which we see at the end of this passage. The first week, we looked at the beginning of this passage in the Emmaus Road, where two disciples walked alongside a stranger who met them, only to find it was Jesus himself. And Jesus challenges their reading of the Bible, saying that you must read the Bible through the door of Jesus. You, you must enter. Anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can read the ancient text of the Bible, but it's only when you read it through the door of Jesus that you see his grace. Second, we learned that one of the chief basics is praying in Jesus' name. This means that we enter prayer, and we looked through the Lord's Prayer, as a way of entering prayer, a conversation with God through the door of Jesus. And so today I wanna look at community how we become a community that's based on the gospel of redemption and grace through faith alone, how we do the second act living. In fact, next week as we start Acts, I was thinking to myself, the book of Acts could literally be called second acts. You've got Peter and Paul, two guys who have just completely miserably blown it, both given a second act and look at the beautiful things they do as the church expands to the nations in that book. But here in this story, we still have the followers of Jesus in what I called last week kind of a proto-church, right? The word, the word ecclesia, which is the word for church in Greek, isn't even used until Acts 5. But there isn't a sense yet that they're a church. This is just a huddle. This is just a group of people gathering together in prayer on the road together through restlessness. And can't we all relate to that? Everybody we know, Christian or non, is gathered together on the road through this life of restlessness, looking for rest for our weary souls. Every community we're a part of is a community of restlessness on a search for arrival, for a destination for the good life. If you're an association of journalists, they're searching for the truth and how to convey it. And there's always revisions and there's always changes. How do we convey the truth? Association of doctors are searching how to best serve their patients. Fathers and mothers are searching for how to parent well. Everybody is searching for a destination. And so how does the restlessness appear for these disciples in this 40-day period? Well, there's, first of all, there's plenty of unbelief. There's just plenty. There's an empty tomb. What does it mean? Was the body stolen? Running around, gathering together, doubt, we have doubting Thomas saying, I, I don't buy it. Prove it. Let me stick my finger literally in your wound. We have Peter, who has just like despondent about what he's done. If this is truly the risen Christ, how on earth did I deny him three times? I'm trash, I'm worthless. And Jesus comes to him and says, I forgive you. Three times for your three denials, I forgive you. Then we have these disciples on the road to Emmaus who are gathered together. And in the passage we read last week, it says, they, they told the stranger, 
what had happened to Jesus, and their hearts were filled with sadness. This shows us that just confiding in community without an anchor in belief. Remember, these two disciples are walking alongside a stranger at this point. That's, that's code narratively for the fact that they didn't believe that this was Jesus, the risen Christ. Right? They're standing next to Jesus and he's just a stranger. They're in a space of unbelief and restlessness, confiding together. And without the anchor of belief... They can't shake a mutual sadness. A sadness shared is not a sadness healed. It is a sadness lessened. I think sharing together and confiding in each other is so important. We do lessen our sadness. We sort of spread it around and carry it for each other. But it doesn't make death go away. Greg can tell me about his dad and it doesn't make his dad not dead. We share it. We lighten each other's load. But the sadness healed that's what we're really looking for. That's what the community, the restless community of humankind is really looking for, is how do I heal the void? A mentor of mine this week said, John, he said, it's really not that difficult, community, evangelism, talking to people about Jesus. Everybody, everybody in your church or out of your church is on a journey from unbelief to belief. Everyone you meet is on a journey from unbelief to belief. So as we practice this basics of Jesus, looking at going through the door of Jesus into these spaces of the Bible and prayer and community, we have to realize that to simplify all of this, we're called first to just believe in Jesus. And then the hard part for those who have accepted Christ in this room is that we are asked to continue to believe in Jesus in light of questions, doubts, family dramas, problems, tragedies, personal sins, societal failings, confusing politics, burnout. No matter where we are, Jesus is drawing us to believe in him. This 40-day period has unusual numerical significance. If you look throughout the Bible, sometimes you have to understand a narrative in the Bible by looking at patterns. There are a number of 40-day patterns in the Bible, and they all indicate a period of trial, testing, and recreation. The first one is the flood of Noah. 40 days and 40 nights. Noah is in a recreation, a total recreation. He's being tested. He's in a trial. The second one we see is Moses traveling through the desert for 40 years. And in fact, there's two 40s, 40 years in Egypt, and then he meets the burning bush, the test and reawakening of his soul and spirit. And then he has to carry the people of Israel through the desert for a 40-year period. For them to come from unbelief to belief... Always this journey happening in these pivotal moments. And so these disciples in this 40-day period, there's a nod here being made by the authors saying, did you catch the reference? This is a time of reawakening. This is a test. This is a trial. Are you going to doubt and give up on Jesus? Or are you going to believe? Are you going to accept the second act in the moment saying, you're right, you did blow it. But you have a chance 
Jesus was known for doing this all throughout his ministry. Always he was offering a second chance to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the righteous man who knew it all. Jesus offered an offensive second chance. To the woman at the well who was a nobody and worthless, Jesus offered to somebody at the margins a second chance. To lepers, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, Jesus' ministry is full of second chances. This is just who he is and how he works. And then he comes, of course, as we mentioned, to the disciples who have all but abandoned him and left him to die alone. The point I'm trying to make here is as a community, we're not entitled to Jesus. We're not here because we deserve what he's got for us. We're not here because we did what we need to do to get what we deserve. We are a community traveling still in unbelief to belief in the second act. And he is going to call us in this time to deeper levels of reliance and trust and belief. So the central question we're going to ask today about our community, Citizens Church, about the church community, perhaps some of you are just grappling with this whole idea of churches. Gosh, I've had so many bad experiences with churches. And we're going we're gonna to ask the central question for community, which is how does the belief in grace from Jesus, the gospel, the redemption that he gives us, the forgiveness of his sins, if we center this grace in community, how does it change how our community is living itself out? If we are a grace-based community, how would that change? How we function as a church, how we remind ourselves of the way, the truth, and the life, how we live in the name of Jesus, because that would change one fundamental key thing that we all get wrapped in, myself included, is that Christian community is not primarily about doing work to go from wrong to right. Christian community is not primarily about doing work to go from wrong to right. The gospel is actually not about self-help and working our way to a sinless state by our own bootstraps. See, we want it to be that way because that's so culturally comfortable for us. That's how we do everything else. That's how we educate ourselves. That's how we succeed at the workplace. That's how we buy our home. That's how we raise our kids. All of it is bootstrapping. We're a nation built on that. And so we want for that to be the case. But the upside down kingdom of Jesus is asking us to live differently. Let me ask you this, how's it working for you, the bootstrap? Is it answering the questions that Greg asked me at the, at the kitchen table? Is it healing the sadness, all this bootstrapping? Is your righteousness making you a person who is more like Jesus? When he says, do not judge, do you find yourself being more or less judgmental? when you've done everything right and you walk into somebody's house who has done everything wrong. I thought of this example. So this, this summer we had a few chances to get to the coast and one of the things that you do when you're at the coast with kids is bring kites, right? Well, you, like, I have twice now been a, a really good, thoughtful dad that wraps up the kite really nicely. And then we had one trip where it's like, get in the car, you know, like pack it up. And there's just all the kites are just shoved in the bag. The, the strings are everywhere. They're all tangled up. 
and I pulled out the next trip, I pulled the kite out and I sat down and I'm, this, this tells you something about me. I sat down, I go, leave me alone. I'm gonna untangle this. I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna fan this out and I'm gonna untangle this absolute mess of cords. For so many of us, that's the story of our life. My family history, uh, my current problems, the way I've screwed my life up so far, I'm gonna get it untangled. No, give me a break, give me room. I'm gonna entangle this mess. For some of us, we're still in the midst of untangling, for sure that we're gonna to get to the bottom of it, even though anyone that would look at it would say, it's just hopeless, you need to give up. For some of us, we've already gotten fed up. We've cut the strings. We've just said, I don't even need the kite anymore. I, it's, it's, it's impossible, life is meaningless. What's the point? And we descend, even if we confide with other people who agree with us, we descend into a state of hopelessness. Being a Christian is realizing that your tangled mess can only be untangled by Jesus. Okay? The tangled mess can only be untangled when you hand it. Jesus says to Peter, will you feed my lambs? Will you feed my lambs? Will you feed my lambs? Three times. It's not Peter feeding the lambs three times after that that gets him off the hook. Jesus gets him off the hook and says, I'm trying to make a point here. Just, just go and be a witness and proclaim things in my name. Trust me to untangle the mess. So we get into this works-based righteousness, we get into this right versus wrong thinking, and we think, no, I've untangled the scriptures, I've made my sense out of my nonsensical life, and we find some path in that that we are proclaiming our righteousness in. But if Jesus is not the center of our belief, the center of our community, which means if his grace and his second act redemption is not the lifeblood of how we act, then we've found a false gospel and we're preaching it. Or if we've cut those cords, we're like the huge, growing, young Christian deconstruction movement on YouTube right now that is saying, just cut the thing. You don't need the kite. Belief? Are you kidding me? How backward are you? That was for your parents and your parents' parents. No, the, the, the truth comes when you cut it all up. Just get rid of it. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, since the Christian is the man who no longer seeks his salvation, his deliverance, his justification in himself, but in Christ Jesus alone, he knows that God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him guilty even when he does not feel his guilt. And, here's the good part, God's word in Jesus Christ pronounces him not guilty and righteous, even when he does not feel that he's righteous at all. So it, it's true that we'll feel like aliens on both sides of the tracks in this community. Sometimes we'll go, are you kidding me? I'm not a sinner. Prove it. I'm doing everything right. Romans 3.10, Bonhoeffer says, look, it's just a fact. Jesus actually said you're guilty. But the good part is that even if you don't feel, you're also righteous. Because some of us also go, How? I don't get it, John. 
like, okay, I got baptized, I come to the, the communion table, but I don't feel any better, my life's not getting better, it doesn't work, what am I doing wrong? Jesus would say, believe, believe. You're not believing, perhaps. Or perhaps you are believing and you're reading the signs of the seen and you're giving up on the faith of the unseen. When you give up on the word of Jesus and his grace for you, you begin to feel hopeless. When you think that the path of your life and where you are in your deathbed indicates whether you were a good Christian or not, by the seen trappings of your life, by the seen things that you have with you, by the way people relate to you, the word is not proclaiming its grace and righteousness for you. See, when we're untangling this kite, it means that sometimes when we give that string over to Jesus to untangle, we'll, we jump in there, we say, no, 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 that one. No, that one. And then the kite's, kite's tugging on it, and we're getting frustrated because we're trying again to take it all back. Bonhoeffer continues, he says, the Christian no longer gives of himself by his own claims and his own justification, but by God's claims and God's justification. So, we come here all the same in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is the beauty of the Christian community. There's no status here. There's no superiority here. Some of us may have more wisdom and experience of walking through that, of saying, I want to reach over, but I'm not going to. Some of us may have more of that experience, but we are all sinners saved by grace. And so then what we have to realize is this church community is full of people whose lives are still tangled and will be tangled to their death because Jesus does not say, I will untangle it all perfectly straight for you by the time you die. No, Jesus says, I will make all things new. When you come to me, when you pass through death to new life in the final sense, you will find that all things have been made new. That requires belief, like a ridiculous, challenging, everyday morning kind of belief in the truth of Jesus to act in the name of Jesus when I don't feel that I have any power, when I don't feel that I have any grace to give, when I don't feel that I have any bandwidth and I'm called to act in his name. When, when the church is perceived one way and everybody's ridiculing us and we are called to act in mercy and meekness and grace, when we feel unsafe and we're called to act and give second acts to people that have robbed a store or have gotten out of prison or whatever, we're second act people giving second acts just like Jesus. And we trust that God will work it out. There are many communities, some within the church and many, many without without, without, outside of the church, that promise to untangle the cord but don't deliver. You are part of communities right now that promise to untangle the tangled mess of your life. But belief in Jesus says none of them will deliver what you're looking for. None of them will heal the deep, the ultimate sadness, the sadness that death brings. And so, should we leave those communities? Should we get out of them? Well, John, they're not going to heal me. No, absolutely not. 
We're going to the nations. We anchor down deep in the community of belief. And we bring that grace and that love to every other community that is looking for the same thing we're looking for and is in the journey from unbelief to belief. Of course, it's really hard when in the journey from unbelief to unbelief, they think they've come to belief, right? That's really hard. The hardest people to talk to are the people that are absolutely positive they're right. Do we change our tactics? Do we operate differently as a community? Does Jesus say the ends justify the means? No, we are a process-driven people with a faith in the word of Jesus. So what we find in this text is that in about this time that this text starts, Jesus has gone from stranger to Christ. He sat down with the two disciples at the table. He's broken bread with them. He's revealed the scriptures to them and their hearts are burning inside of them. And what we find here is that we begin to see how the community of Jesus begins to find Jesus through each other. Find Jesus through each other. Look at, look at the interesting things of the community in this 40-day period. Always in pairs. Everybody's coming in pairs. They, they've learned to confide in each other. And they have made a really important step in community, which is if you're not paired up with somebody yet that you can talk about your faith with, that you can struggle through these things, the text shows us, just through the prevalence of it in the narrative, that a pair is a good thing. Whether that's with your spouse, with a close friend, the community of Jesus, finding Jesus and anchoring our belief is done through pairing up in some way, through finding the deepness of our faith through another believer or another journeyer on the restless journey. Bonhoeffer says that community, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. First, the Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. Second, a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. That's that process thinking. Third, in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. That's the hope piece. That's the healing of the sadness. So if we put ourselves as these Emmaus Road travelers, you don't know the strangers that may come, away, come along in your life that show you Jesus, that reveal him to you. I think of my life just in the last two years, how many people were a stranger two years ago that now have come to show the love of Jesus to me. I have met Jesus because of a stranger that I gave time to. And through them, as Bonhoeffer says, I've come to know Jesus better because we are always journeying on that gradient from unbelief to belief. We're always reaching and finding new ways to know him. And these, these communities, as we find them, share encouragement and new insights. Together we'd experience, as these disciples did, revelations. We make new connections as we pick up and go through this story together. So let's look at verse 33 through 36 just for a moment at what happens here. The two disciples rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, which is Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road, the two disciples, and how he was known to them, how Jesus was known to them when he broke the bread for them, when he forgave them, when he made a nod to the fact 
that it's me, the one who forgives you. And it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, peace to you. So that's the first thing we see when we ask this question, what does it mean to be a Christian community built on grace? We have to first say it means being a community. Just the most basic dodge on. How do we define this? Community, how do we define it? Companionship, welcoming the stranger. This church has been built on welcoming the stranger and we will not part from that ever. But think of the way they're welcoming a stranger. This is unthinkable in modern America. They have traveled a day with somebody. Say you're out on a hiking trail. You meet a friend. You get to know them. You chat the whole time. You're like, we really connect. Come stay at my house tonight since you don't have anywhere to stay. When's the last time you did that? That's the kind of hospitality that's being demonstrated. That's how they're finding Jesus. That's how the gospel is going to be shared in the book of Acts, is this open sense, this hopeful sense of hospitality, opening up the ring of current relationship and making space to travel with strangers, sharing the wealth. And of course, it's built on conversing, but also on listening. If they had been like, yeah, you revealed the scriptures to me, but I know how the scriptures are and they don't lead to Jesus because Jesus is dead. How are you going to convince somebody that knows everything? So community is also built on listening to each other, hearing each other's hearts, inviting and opening and listening to the spirit. And it's built on a hospitality. They ask Jesus, who is at this point still a stranger to them, to stay and have communion, to share a meal. And that communion opens up into a communion they couldn't have possibly believed. Well, here we again, in this next section, find that the communion opens up in a way that they couldn't possibly believe. Radical, life-changing. Here we begin to see that community for them becomes formational, that our communities form us. In fact, all of our communities form us. Every community you're a part of, car club, poker night, anything, uh, guys gathering after work for a beer at happy hour, anything you do is a formational community. It is forming you. After school, study time, summer camp, all of these things are hugely formational for us. And so the importance of having a community of believers in the church as a formational community for you is that you will build your life around the expectations of others. It's just natural for us as humans. James Clear, who's, a, who's wrote a book on habits, it's very popular right now, talks about keystone habits. And I've talked about this in terms of an anchor habit. And I've said we should have an anchor habit of giving grace in this church. That's an anchor habit for us. It's just something we do. We, do, we begin to start to do it without even thinking. What, what this, and then he moves on to say there's a keystone community. This is an anchor community for us. This is our formational life-giving community. And that community in the church must be grace-based to be living in one accord with Jesus, in the name of Jesus. That's a healthy church. A healthy church is one that we can come to and we will experience the fullness of grace. That we will find truth. We will be like the lighthouse that we have up here. Like the redemption of Eve to Mary through the birth of Jesus. That's why we have those up here, is that these are incredibly pivotal parts of our formational community. 
But if your community's role is actually to foster unbelief, which means it's to foster belief in something other than Jesus as the answer to the good life, as the thing that will fix society, as the thing that will fix your problems, as the thing that will make you feel finally good the way you want it to, as the, the way you will self-actualize, those communities' role is to foster unbelief in you. They are forming you into unbelief. Again, don't hear me saying flee from the world. That's, you, if you know me, you know that's not the way I am. Hear me say, find a formational community that's leading you to believe so you can be the witness of Jesus in every other community. So you can see clearly when a community is full of gossipers or dividers or tribe builders or controllers. What are the marks then that we find of this formational community in this text? What are the things that we witness here? Well, the first is peace, but look how it happens. Peace to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So the first thing that happens when the divine revelation, when the beauty and the peace and the forgiveness of Jesus happens, it's so ridiculously powerful. It's so alien and makes so little sense, this message of grace in the world that we all live in that they're freaked out of their minds. How did I end up here? What am I doing with these people? Have you ever had a moment where you like wake up in your church or Christian life and you go, why am I saying this? Who, who are they? Why am I in this church? How did I get here? So sometimes those are moments of doubt. You're doubting the authenticity of Jesus. You're saying, I based my life on maybe a lie. Like, I, what is going on? What's, which, which is the right way up? And this community right here is turned topsy-turvy. They're asking, am I full of it? Is this whole thing off the rails? Am I crazy? And what happens is that within this community, with Jesus standing among them, with their reaching each other through Jesus, they find encouragement. The encouragement they had in conversations about Jesus makes it through the doubt to encouragement again, to peace. Jesus asked me, he says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then we see that they become at ease and a spirit of peace, the peace he commanded in his word prevails in them and their hearts turn from disbelief to disbelief in joy. Now, what's the difference between that? Here, here's the best way I can explain it. Okay, if you tell a kid, I have some news about your birthday party. And then you stop. You might see that kid's face just go, what, like, is not gonna happen? Like, we couldn't, what, what's going on? And you go, we're gonna go to Disneyland. Like, their, their face is gonna go from, like, complete disbelief, I can't believe it, my dad just blew it, to, like, my dad is better than I ever could have possibly imagined. 
I'm just running around with joy. I have gone from disbelief to disbelief and joy. I can't believe it's true. It's so good. It's too good to be true. And the gospel will hit that funny bone for us. It will tingle that spot in us. And we will, the devil will say, that's because it is too good to be true. And this text is saying, no, it's because the, re the reality of reality is so much more real than you could ever imagine. The reality that grace will create in your community is so much better than anything you've seen in the world that has to offer. But unfortunately, we default frequently to faith in the unseen, and we live our lives out as a church in a state of hopelessness, you guys. We spend more time confiding in each other in the hopelessness of Portland. We spend our time looking at houses in other cities to move in because the city is no longer safe for our kids. The city's gone to the wolves. We bemoan together Ted Wheeler or Kate Brown. We bemoan the homeless communities that we can see down our street. We talk about downtown and how it's all gone to pot. So much hopelessness and fear lives in the church, in Christians, in this city. We have gone from grace doesn't work. We, the, the space that we are in is a grace doesn't work space. I've seen it. It's not working. That's not belief. Faith in the scene is not faith in Jesus. Faith in the life around you as being the ultimate sense of reality is not true reality. That's what Jesus is saying. And so a mark of true Christian community is a hopeful narrative to our lives and to this city. The only way you can do that in this city right now, I think, sometimes is belief. Now, you can put things into perspective. I've had so many people say, John, like, sometimes you just got to look around. I mean, look at Afghanistan. We've got it good. And they're right. That perspective is actually helping me a lot. But the word of Jesus is going to bring me not just from, like, less hopelessness, it's going to bring me to hopefulness. That we as a church have the power to bring a new narrative to Portland in our conversations. We have a power to disrupt the confiding and sadness that is the natural place we'll want to go. Yeah, man, I've seen it too. Gosh, I don't even know what to do about it. Down my street too. I've literally done that many times. It doesn't feel good. It, it doesn't feel constructive, helpful. I don't feel like I'm a witness to Jesus. It doesn't open a pathway to gospel conversation. All it is is confiding in the culture of unbelief. But what would it look like for me to authentically actually wake up with a hopeful vision of the city? No, this city's in growing pains. Gosh, this city's going really good places. I want to live here. I want to get me in. When everybody's going out, get me in there. That's what the church is about giving the second act to the people around us after we realize the second act is given to us and giving the second act to our city itself. And that brings a deep joy. And I'm gonna skip down a little bit. We're gonna to return to this middle section. I'm gonna to go to verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. That's what we do on Sundays. This is worship. This is blessing God for his good graciousness for our lives, for our city, for our nation, for our world. 
We do it despite the Taliban reigning over Afghanistan. We do it despite whatever president is in office. We worship, enjoy the risen Christ, the true king who has ascended to the Father and is in the true position of rule in his unfolding kingdom. And with faith and trust and a beholding of the too good to be trueness of God. And we say, but it is true. Other people are going to say, you're off your rocker. You're totally crazy. It'll happen. You come to the community of belief. You anchor into the formational community. You find encouragement. You fuel up. You go out in pairs. You get hopeful. You give joy. We come here, and what do we do on both sides of the message? What do we do to envelop the service? We sing together. Megan and Sarah have created a space for us to practice joyful singing together, living in the peace of Christ together. So that brings us to the practice pieces here. Let's just use this as an example. True story. Some of you remember this. 2015 at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina, a shooter opened fire in a Bible study killing nine people. And that church became a witness to the watching world as a viral video spread of Nadine Collier saying, I forgive you. her voice breaking with emotion. She said, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again, the one you killed. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. I acknowledge that I'm very angry, said another relative of a victim. But one thing that my sister taught me is that we are a family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And I pray God on your soul. That sounds like belief to me. That sounds like a community that is witnessing the glory of Jesus. We're, we're looking at all these news articles about the hypocrisy of the church. You're looking at the wrong formational communities. Inspire yourself with the communities built on belief and the word. Notice how she's talking not of Jesus there. She says, we are the family that love built. The most immediate human thing for her is just to relate to her formational community, but it's still a gospel witness and it proclaims in Jesus's name because in proclaiming in Jesus' name is not puffed up and self-righteous. It's not angry or superior. It's not loud and boisterous. It's not how Jesus acted. When we proclaim in Jesus' name, we proclaim in graciousness. We take the bullet. That's the act of proclaiming in Jesus. It's not about a journey from wrong to right. It's a journey about unbelief to belief. The Charleston shooter was given a second act spiritually. Still had to go to prison. Still, I don't know all the details. Still had to face the law. But the community of Jesus communicated the message of Jesus, which is that my grace abounds for you too, just like all of these others. So in verse 47 and 48, Jesus says, he goes, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. A witness vouches for the truth. Here we have a story of gospel witness, grace-based witnessing that is absolutely strengthened by the community. I am positive that Bible study gathered around each other in encouragement, praying hopefulness, praying the word. If, you, if the devil gets those people off in their own little silos, it's over. 
There's just a huge importance to the power of community. Now let's contrast this with true story on the I-5 drive. Two signs next to each other. I think one said, Jesus saves sinners, and the other one had John 3.16 on it. Two big billboards. In between it says, christiansigns.org, buy yours today. Is that in Jesus' name? It's Jesus' words. Is it in his name? One of them is selling something. The other is sacrificing something. The medium is the message. The community of Jesus is the message of Jesus. I'm intentionally hitting us a little bit here. I'm intentionally roughing us up a little bit here because we are desiring the ideal in our comfortable space. We want what Bonhoeffer calls the wish dream of community and we don't accept the reality of the broken community of the church and we're not rushing in to be the redemptive influence sometimes. So this is a reminder for those of us who have gotten comfortable to jump in. If you're an undercover Christian, talked about coming out of the closet, coming out of the Christian closet in your workplace, do you hide that you go to church? Are you not authentic with people around you? Imagine if somebody found out that you had been hiding that from all the time. It'd be so weird. They'd be like, everyone else I know tells me about their like actual life. Like, you're afraid. You're afraid. Come out of the Christian closet in your workplace with your friends, with the people that you're trying to be two people with. Understand that there's a mess that you're going to come into. The Christian community is a messy community. Lot of Bonhoeffer here today, his book Life Together inspired a lot of my thinking here. He says, often we take for granted the order of our churches. We find comfort and we dwell there. But Jesus lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of his, his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. And then here he quotes Martin Luther. He who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends. He wants to sit among the roses and the lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. And then he says this scathing, oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, would you ever have been spared? Every one of us right now, just we're all sinners. We've all come to the church to be cloistered in the roses and the lilies, to be safe from the fears of the world because of our unbelief we believe have power over us that they don't have. A community is not about perfection, it's about connection. Luther says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Some versions say sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death in the world. Now he's not telling us to go sin more. What he's saying is be bold about the fact that you're a sinner because then the grace of God is that much more powerful. So do we not know where to start? Neither did the disciples. Neither did the disciples. 40-day period, just like knowing the flood, a recreation is happening. The spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit within them is going to come and descend on them. And their second act is coming for us. Some of us are in the second act of our spiritual life. We've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We've been baptized. Some of us are looking and saying, is it true? Is it real? The next step, I believe, is joining in community. 
from the outside or the inside, join together in community. At our church, we have something we call cohorts. These are men and women gathered together in separate groups, and we just dig into it with each other. We do Bible study. We do intimate practice of sharing sin and asking for, for advice. We ask for encouragement from Jesus. We pray for each other. We, we accept that each other are forgiven for their sins that we share with each other. We keep things confidential. We notice people's sin habits. Are you complaining a lot? Are you hopeless? And we encourage each other. That's a group method we have. If you haven't done that, join one of those at this church. I have not talked about this, but one of the next things in this season is going to be making sure each one of you are connected with an intimate journeyer. Start building a relationship with somebody in the journey of restlessness. Ideally, somebody who's anchored in belief like you. So that you have somebody really close that you can go to that you can share the deepest worries and struggles and pains with without fear of judgment. And we're gonna change our cohort practices from an inward practice. We've been focused a lot on confession and a lot on personal sin. I think that's, there's always value in that, but we are missing such a big part that we're not checking in with each other about our outward communities, about the places we are in the city, about the people we know, about the struggles we're having with. Maybe we're trying to share the gospel and we just don't know how. Maybe we're just too afraid to even start. Maybe it literally hasn't even occurred to us. We're going to begin shaping those outward communities and checking in and holding people accountable. And I guarantee you it's gonna be messy. I guarantee you. Because we're not promised a clean community. We're promised a grace-based community. Because we have this God. The Gospel of Luke starts the way it ends with people in the temple of God praising him and blessing his name. And why? Before Jesus, we see Zechariah praising God in the temple. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And it ends in the same place, praising God in the temple the ascended king, and it completes the circle. There is a continual blessing. We are blessed by God as he ascends upward, and we are blessing our rescuer, God. Let's pray. God, pray that you would convict us today. God, if it felt a little harsh for us, I pray that you would bring your gentle hand on our shoulder right now. God, if we need waking up, I pray that you would keep us shook right now. Bring us to next steps. Bring us to ask. Bring us to reveal. Bring us to share. And most of all, God, that you bring us to give grace to each other when we so much want not to. That we would be known by a community of grace, not because it's going to work in the short term every time, because your word promises through belief in you that it is the way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.